This is Labor Wave Revolution Radio. Secure attachments are not just for couples the way they are thought of in psychology. Secure attachments are not just for parents and children. They're not just for siblings. They're not just for romantic partners. I think that the limbic brain's gift of belonging also is part of what allows us to belong ecologically and socially. And maybe that's a little crystallizing of connectedness that can resist fragmentation that puts us at risk for a conflict. On Labor Wave, we spoke with Neva Smolash, who publishes under the pen name Nora Samaran. Neva Smolash is a white settler from a working-class immigrant family background. She was a member of the No One Is Illegal Vancouver Collective from 2005 to 2008, and the Media Democracy Day Vancouver Collective from 2008 to 2010. Her popular essay, The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture, went viral in February 2016 and has grown into a book, Turn This World Inside Out, published by AK Press in June 2019. She teaches at Douglas College in Coast Salish Territories, also known as Vancouver, British Columbia. Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture is a collection of essays and dialogues on topics ranging from violence, rape culture, nurturance, attachment theory, white supremacy, settler colonialism, homophobia, and more. A note to listeners about this episode... When we sat down to speak with Nevis Moash, we quickly discarded any preset questions that we had prepared because our conversation just began, and what we decided to do was just start recording in the middle of a talk between two people. So what you should expect as listeners of this episode is effectively to have the experience of a fly on the wall of two people's conversation that covers a whole range of topics. Every portion of the episode is going to have a bit of a preface just to give some context for what we were talking about at that moment. And I really hope that folks enjoy this more loose, free-form episode than is typically the format of Labor Wave. This portion of our episode focuses on gaslighting, entitlement, and how privilege and entitlement can numb empathic responses to other people's suffering. In her essay on gaslighting, Nora Samoan writes, It feels tremendously important and can be difficult to keep our empathy directed toward the survivor in cases of gendered violence, including significant long-term ongoing gaslighting. Patriarchal culture teaches us to empathize with those who have power, and in particular to empathize with men who harm, and to skip or forget to feel what it is like to survive this type of abuse when it is ongoing, systemic, long-term. We need to turn this around so we can respond in a caring way without centering abusers while offering a path for repair and learning when masculine-identified people and others who hold systemic power recognize they have engaged in this kind of psychological undermining of someone else's mind. I think if this were like a Sesame Street episode and there were like an organizing word, it would be empathy. Have you read the book, Why Does He Do That? by Lundy Bancroft? I have not read that. It's really helpful. And it reframed a, multiple friends, like put it in my hands after the nurturance essay was written. And we're like, yeah, no, you're missing something. You need to read this. And uh, he talks, it's a, a man who's worked, who's run abuser programs 
you know, for a long time, worked with hundreds of abusive men, many of whom were mandated to go, some of whom were choosing. And uh, one of the things, the very back section has uh, all this connection to, to um, social structures and power, which is unusual for a book that's working on like in psychological terrain, connecting it to social power. And uh, he argues that the making of an abusive man in this case um, is cultural, is that, you know, it's not that we're somehow missing em empathy when we come into the world. I think people can have more or less innate empathic capacities and then they can be nurtured or not nurtured. But he tells a story of a little boy. I use this with my, with my godson who immediately understood. He tells a story of a little boy whose family tells him, you, when you grow up, when you turn 18, you're going to inherit this big piece of land that now we let the community use it, but that's temporary. It's just because you're so generous. It really belongs to our family and it's going to be passed down to you. And he's, oh, okay, wonderful. Like we're so generous, you know, for now in my largesse, I'll allow the community to go camping and enjoy the land and the park. It's a big park, you know. And uh, he goes and visits it and he he feels good about how he's letting people use this land, but he knows that it's really his and when the time comes, he'll be taking it back. And then when he turns, when he comes of age, the time comes and he goes to the community where he lives and he says, okay, I've been generously, my family and I have been allowing you to be on this our land this whole time and now that time is over and it's time to leave so I can take it back because it's rightfully mine. <laughs> and it's not, in fact, his. It's, in fact, owned by the community you can think of it as owned as a commons or owned by the municipality or a state park or whoever you want to frame it and his family has in fact been mistaken that entire time and he has been raised to think of it inaccurately it never belonged to him it was not accurate and so of course the community are like who the hell are you this is public land we're allowed to camp here and fish here and enjoy being here <laughs> And then he gets really angry and he feels like he's being bullied by them and oppressed by them. And he starts like fighting them and yelling and screaming and breaking their things. And, and then they're, you know, understandably upset with him. And he tells that story to illustrate entitlement, conditioning into entitlement. And the way little boys grow up with all these myths of, um, you know, if you do the right things, then you are owed certain things. You are owed a beautiful wife and a house and a, a job that pays enough to support a family. And they're your right, they're your due, if you do what you're supposed to do. And, you know, nobody's owed a wife. <laughs> like, nobody's owed a job. Like, And so real life comes along and other people are not getting told they're owed all these things. Like, I didn't grow up getting told I was owed a partner or a home and I think a lot of folks don't, don't, he couldn't even imagine getting told that kind of thing, but that this culture through its, all of its, like its films and, um, and art and, and toys and so much of men's upbringing, at least in this book, the, the description he gives is to create this idea of entitlement. And then when that doesn't match reality, people can not be able because they weren't raised to notice what other people are experiencing under those circumstances. And then when they are pushed back on, appropriately they feel oppressed but they're not actually sure. being oppressed because <laughs> it was not an entitlement to begin with so not in the sense that there's some inside them they're missing empathy although that also happened 
but more widespread than that. Um, the cultural conditioning to not really feel what other people are feeling can be conditioned. It reminds me of a piece that I read shortly after the election of Donald Trump by Rebecca yeah. Solnit. Yes. I definitely don't want to talk about Donald Trump a lot, but I'll just mention okay. it. <laughs> we can. Called uh, The Loneliness of Donald Trump. I don't know if you encountered this piece or not. I think I've seen the title, but I don't know if I read it. Tell me. It was in the tradition of Hannah Arendt talking about authoritarians and how they are, I think the expression you use in the book is acculturated in the dominance mm. and through just daily life and how it's structured and this kind of belong, this sense of entitlement that's fostered in them, they are unable to hear other humans as human. Right? They can't mm-hmm. hear voices as human that don't belong to them or that yeah. fit into this paradigm of entitlement. And Rebecca Solnit's piece was very interesting in that it focused on Donald Trump and talked about, like, just from that perspective of him growing up into a uber wealthy family uh, with all of this inheritance, and then just having a, a sea of people around him that are always affirming what he thinks, what he says, how he belongs in the world, that this is yours, and like you're just generous if you let other people use it, that he legitimately can't hear people. Uh, their concerns and their needs and their voices as human anymore. Uh, I thought it was really interesting. And I don't know, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You lose something. And I, I think, and you know, lots of people have been making this point for a long, long time. Like it's not, this isn't new to the book. It's just the particular iteration that the book is taking happens to connect it to some neurological stuff like attachment and the limbic brain. And, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I think there's a long tradition of folks pointing out that that's the case not just for masculinity, but for whiteness, for wealth, not just the case for wealth, as you pointed out, but for all these other ways that we grow up, like, you know, growing up as a white person in Canada with citizenship, like born here. I'm from an immigrant family and I'm from a family that were, my dad's a Holocaust survivor. So I'm from a family that a generation ago was experiencing racialized violence in a different place. But then here I'm born in Canada in like 77. I grew up in the eighties and the nineties with citizenship, with white skin, like, you know, I realized at some point in the last few years that something was numbed in me in my ability to perceive other folks facing racialized violence as fully, like I I understood intellectually what was happening, but I noticed an absence of empathic response and was really surprised to catch that. This is a pretty vulnerable story, but maybe it would be appropriate here. It's a, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's like a moment when I caught myself being, having lost a, the way that we lose parts of ourselves when we enter into whiteness. I don't know if it's, yeah, let's try it. What the hell? You're willing to share it. I'm willing to share it. I think it's okay. This is, yeah, it, every conversation brings up different pieces of the story, right? So um, this, so, okay. The context is um, I did a training with Sandra Kim a couple of years ago. She does, she's the um, founder of Everyday Feminism, if you know it, online. And she runs these trainings, um, one for white folks, one for people of color. Some folks self-select, depending on their backgrounds, might, might be both. Um, and I did the training for white folks. And she works down into those parts of the self that have been numbed through inculcation into white supremacy. So her, her thinking, and there's a long lineage of folks of color doing this work, but hers particularly is one of the ways that I accessed it. And it connected for me, it made sense for me of this moment that where a year earlier I'd been at a training that Adrian Marie Brown was doing. And 
it was mostly black folks in the room and there was one other white Jewish woman and we didn't want to impose on anybody or force or like, we didn't want to be like, Oh, you have to work with us. So we kind of found each other. <laughs> We're like, okay, we'll just stay in the corner here and like trying to take up too much space. And, um, it was already pre-planned. This was a workshop on grief and like embodying grief and collective grieving, grieving together. And by chance that morning or the day before had been the Charleston shooting had happened, had happened. Right. Which is like a black church getting shot. Right. And so all of a sudden, and it was an open workshop for everybody. And it had been, you'd registered in advance, like it had been planned, right? Or at least I had been planning to go for weeks and then found myself in this space where black folks were grieving something that was really visceral, was hitting folks really viscerally. And, and I was looking at this other white Jewish woman close and we're like in a corner, like talking and looking at each other as we're doing this work around embodied grief and I was like, do you find it weird that this doesn't land viscerally for you? Like it, I understand what it is. And I, I'm, a, I'm honored to be witnessing the grieving that people are holding for one another, but I don't think my body is getting hit with this as though it's people that are connected to me. Where in, you know, it's not because it's far away because um, the tree of life shooting was in the States like the synagogue shooting, and that fucked me up so badly, viscerally, right? So it's something about, do I understand these folks as like me? And I grew up in a black neighborhood. Like, it's not, it's not like I shouldn't connect to black folks as experiencing something like me, like a human connection. And yet it wasn't there. And I was like, okay, that's weird. <laughs> Where where is the empathy or the like visceral connectedness to these folks having been killed while praying in a church, like the most vulnerable, you know? Um, and I could only get into it cognitively, like I could get to it through other experiences, through having experienced other forms of harm where I know what it feels like when you're targeted. I could then like empathize, but I wasn't experiencing it as though it was a visceral thing. And I looked at her and she nodded and we both were like, wow, okay. And I was just after that for like a year, I was like, well, what's missing in white people if we can't care when other people get killed? Like what's wrong with us? Because it seems that way. It seems like white folks have something missing around racism, you know? And I'm like, well, if even I have something missing and like, I'm literally one, like, kind of half a generation away from like my dad was born on the run in camps you know like there were like I have dead uncles from the war and like I'm named after someone who didn't make it out like all those stories of being hunted for your race and of of um of you know being targeted are visceral in my family and yet here somehow my lifetime as a white person has just buffered me from empathic connection and Sandra Kim goes right into that. So I'm like, wow, okay. So something gets turned off in like the souls of white people. <laughs> Some dehumanizing quality happens when you enter into a, a position of power, you know, and that's there despite having grown up poor, despite having, you know, experienced gender violence and other kinds of harm. Nonetheless, there was something like missing, you know? And then in that work with Sandra Kim, she walked us through going close to it and like touching it. <laughs> And I, I kept falling asleep. It's like this numb part of you. 
And with her, I don't know how, what she was doing exactly. It was just a meditation she was taking. But it's like, you go right up to the part of you that's been numbed. And I swear it felt like when you go to the dentist and like your face is numb, I could feel the numb place in my soul. And I couldn't stay with it. I kept checking out. It was unbearably painful. It was like excruciatingly painful. Because when you go back to a numb place, at first it hurts. And then I realized that's what I've been asking men to do. <laughs> no wonder they try not to. <laughs> like it's painful. And that's what I don't understand when I work, when I'm close with men. I'm like, how could you not? If I'm getting targeted by gendered violence, how could you? care this little like you love me why doesn't this land for you and you poke the absence of real protective empathy when like so many of my other friends are like oh man I'm so mad that happened to you I'm feeling so protective of you and I'm like my closest men in my life sometimes just kind of check out you know and I'm like wow well it, it's painful to touch something that's been numbed but it's worth it but man it made me empathize both ways and I think that's the project right it's like we're going to have to change both of these things. We're going to have to change the internalized um, internalized devaluing that's happened to targeted folks. And then we're going to have to also rebuild the capacity to humanize in any way in which we've been positioned within power. So those spaces that within people that are numbed, do you feel that those are part of the root causes that enable so much gaslighting like first off what is gaslighting can you <laughs> oh god <laughs> and then why why does it happen there are like three layers of answers right you know i think what's your definition of it so far it's just like when you deny somebody else's reality that's the usual way people use it yeah, but, and now what i liked about your essay was that it doesn't have to be the intentional effort to yeah somebody into doubting their own reality but that by kind of turning away from these spaces within us that are numbed, it cuts off the ability to hear human voices and like recognize human needs. Yeah. And then by doing so, we embody practices that effectively just, um, they lash out at people or they turn people's like kinds of feelings for needs and comfort and safety into things that are burdens and then behave in ways that maybe like, it can manifest in so many different ways. And the stories that you tell there were very subtle moments really, but they like, they matter very deeply. Cause they're cumulative. Cause it's dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens all the time. And punishment. If you trust yourself for a lot of us, like if you're too confident or too certain, there is swift and brutal punishment and that begins young. So, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> There's so many answers to that question. There's intentional, unintentional, the stuff that happens just because of that conditioning into entitlement where something is happening for someone else and it hasn't happened to you and you've never even known that it happens. So we have a series of distortions that come into play when someone names a thing that is real, but that we have not experienced. There's a whole host of complex. I mean, this you could learn and learn and learn forever. So I, I have, I picked up this, these uh, notes from this training that we did a little while ago. Um, this was a collaboration with a bunch of different people kind of joining things we've noticed and seen. And um, what we noticed is what I, I experienced over a few years, both when I was facing harm and also as a person along the side as a bystander, when people would name it, I caught these bystander dynamics in myself <laughs> because I had, until you're in the different position, you only see 
it's almost like every, you know, that story about the elephant and one man touches the trunk and one man touches the side and one says it's a building. <laughs> Someone else touches the tail and says it's a rope, you know, but there's a big picture. As you move through the different positions relative to a type of harm, suddenly things are revealed to you that can only be revealed when you're in that relative position. So until you're the survivor of a type of harm in a culture that is built to deny it or erase it or minimize it, um, you won't understand that that's happening. And I think it was in On Apologize or Paris described it as like the holodeck on Star Trek, you know, next gen, the holodeck when like you can be in this gorgeous, um, enormous savanna or a wilderness, like a forest and the walls are actually right there, but you don't know until you bump into them. And then the grid appears for a second. <laughs> These kinds of cultural conditioned harms are kind of like that. It's like it was there the whole time, but until you bump up against it, you don't know it's there. And I bumped up against it really hard a few years ago and didn't understand what I was seeing because it made no sense. And then I started talking to other people and realizing it was very patterned and has been around a very long time. And some of them are, um, well, for one thing, it's hard for people to even name. So there are challenges, whether it's harm of like, gendered violence or whether it's the compounding like um, of gendered violence with other kinds of harms like poverty, racism, um, cishet normativity, like when these things compound, right? That's, um, uh, what's your name? Um, who came up with the concept? Who named intersectionality? Um, sorry, I'm low sleep right now. Uh, Kimberly Crenshaw. Kimberly Crenshaw. So there's, so she talks about the, the compounding of harms and how they create particular vulnerabilities, right? That that story that she tells of Emma's dilemma that if you're a black woman applying to work in this factory that hires black people and hires women, then the court won't even hear her case because um, they say, well, there can't be any discrimination because they hire black people and they hire women, but they discriminated against her for being both. So if you're a black woman, there's nowhere for you to work and they wouldn't hire you and that the court wouldn't even hear it. So then you're abandoned after being doubly harmed. That that when she started seeing the compounding harms that create particular vulnerabilities for folks. Um, so if it's those harms that are getting named, the people around you haven't been in your position and will just not hear you. <laughs> like your words will be meaningless to them because they, they don't have a framework with which to understand it. Neva discusses how the absence of nurturance culture on a societal and interpersonal level turns common human needs into feelings of shame. As she writes in her essay, The Opposite of Rape Culture is Nurturance Culture, what we need is a model for slow self-love that brings shame into the light and finds reality checks with those who accept you unconditionally, hold you accountable, and aren't going anywhere. We need a model of justice that recognizes the lived reality of interdependence and learns to do it well, 
not a justice of shame that frightens us all out of looking at our shadow selves in a world in which most men are expected to begin cutting off parts of themselves from the time they are quite young. The solution, in tangible terms, is community care and an awareness of how most of us did not have our needs met at key developmental stages, which means we did not move out of those stages and must do so now. Collective healing is possible. We can heal when we can finally be our whole, unguarded selves in human community without shields or guards and be liked, accepted, seen, held. This is systemic change, spiritual change at the core levels of our culture lived each day. That came both out of regaining aspect lost parts of me and also being close to I think at at different points in my life, being close to people who had something really wrong going on internally, but didn't name it as, oh, I've got something to work on. They instead, that's where the gaslighting piece, maybe if we circle around to that, it's okay to have a hard time with connection. It's okay to have a hard time saying sorry. It's okay to have a hard time feeling like, oh, I'm bad. I did something wrong. Those are just experiences. Where it becomes abuse is where you deny that that's the case, which shame often leads us to do. We want to slip off it, right? We want to be like, I'm not feeling shame because it's such an unbearable emotion for some folks, right? If the part of you that would do empathy rather than shame got numbed, right? Which I think in these case, in these cases, that's what I was maybe slowly figuring out. But like, a couple of these folks that have been important at various points in my life had had something developmentally happen at a particular stage that resulted in what we sometimes call narcissism, narcissistic traits, which includes like having numbed a part of the self so thoroughly that they don't even know it's gone and then having built a false self on top and then needing to maintain that false self at all costs <laughs> and not knowing that. And therefore, as a result, without having any malicious intent, Make using picking up on the social conditioning that says need is bad, need is shameful, and women are the ones who are needy. <laughs> you know, any non cis men, any non masculine folks are the ones that are needy. And so there's a lot of cultural conditioning that will feed what actually is not really what's happening neurologically or biologically, which is that maybe that person has a lower than typical comfort with healthy responsiveness. And so instead of being like, wow. Whenever you cuddle with me, I freak out (laughs) and that must be sort of hard for you. The person will say, there's something wrong with you. You have bottomless needs. No one could ever possibly meet your needs. And it's not actually the case. The only need is healthy needs like responsiveness, smiling at each other, looking at each other lovingly, cuddling, being there when you're sick, being there when you get hurt, like really healthy things that in a securely attached bond, you see how healthy it is. But I hadn't grown up with entirely secure bonds. And some of these other folks that I was learning this, unfortunately, with also hadn't. (laughs) And so neither of us knew what was healthy and normal and expected. But the cultural overlay says need is wrong. Independence and autonomy is ideal. Not needing others is strength. And so when I was told, if you turn to me for comfort and I freeze and panic and then tell you there's something wrong with you for needing it, I internalized that really intensely and it touched on some older shame and it led to trauma responses in me. But I had had other experiences. I'd have, I've had, I've had two long-term really loving partners who were very good to me and who worked through a lot of that trauma history with me and helped me learn. I'd be like, Oh my God, this need is so shameful. And they'd be like, no, it isn't what you need a hug. <laughs> no, that's not shameful. Come here. <laughs> like, that's fine. 
<laughs> you know, <laughs> you need a lot of hugs. Okay, cool. Unlimited hugs. Here you go. Like, it's not an issue, <laughs> right? And then the limbic brain, then you can relearn that that thing that I internalized as deeply, deeply, horrifically shameful when I was like two or three or whatever was actually healthy and fine and then and beautiful and then that transforms the world outside that transforms the world around you and i've been doing that work and then meanwhile had been close to this two people in a row basically who had some of those kinds of issues because when you get out of one abusive relationship and you're a bit messed up you're vulnerable to starting another one and i did that because <laughs> it was you know public persona folks who build a public persona of um being a feminist and i think that a lot of the fields where you can build a public persona draw these folks with, with, with their set of issues like where you can replace private empathy and private connectedness and private responsiveness or care with looking good <laughs> because the true self has been gone for so long it's been disconnected under walls and walls and walls and layers and layers and layers of shame that are not earned they're not real but shame is convincing right like i had learned that on my own where i was like oh I didn't know that that thing, it was like a shame hidden under another layer of shame around a thing like needing to make eye contact with my partner. <laughs> I had been shaming myself for healthy things and other people then I did, I, I, you know, accepted the date who would shame me for that. Um, and after having been in two really good, healthy, loving relationships, I knew that something was wrong, <laughs> but I didn't know what it was because it matched my old beliefs. And as I healed that, you realize that, you know, a little kid needing to cuddle with their caregiver was never shameful at the time when I was three or two or six, you know, and I'd maybe go cuddle my brother and he'd scream and push me away or whatever, which was his thing. I thought it was my thing as a six-year-old. And now as an adult, I can be like, no, I mean, it's not his fault. It's not my fault, but it wasn't shameful in me. And I think I just felt really deep empathy for both of those positions. Like I could tell that the people doing this were suffering and I was suffering through proximity to being told it was me <laughs> and I could tell in this case it was not malicious and you know there was this one person I, I, there was this one person that I dated who I could tell was not doing it intentionally but was really really screwing me up by saying things that were just not accurate about what is objectively the case and it meant that I was compassionate for what was happening for them, even as I was becoming clear that the things they believed to be true were not true. And as I healed that in myself and got more certain about what is normal and healthy, I got more able to respond in calmer ways and be like, well, yeah, no, this need of mine is perfectly fine. It doesn't mean you have to meet it. We might not be compatible or whatever, but like at the time I felt so much shame and I had fragmented off the parts of myself that did that kind of care or could could connect in a healthy way without feeling a lot of fear and terror. And so healing that has been necessary for me. And it also led me to feel compassion. And I guess the nurturance piece had that compassion in it. And I guess that's why people get touched by it because they read it and they don't feel they're being attacked, which is hard because if you have this shame built underneath, people feel attacked even when they're not being attacked.
Our conversation turned toward holding perpetrators of harm accountable to their behavior. In our essay, Own, Apologize, Repair, Coming Back to Integrity, Nora Samaran writes, Ask yourself who the people are you would want to hold you accountable if you behaved in an abusive way. If you are the kind of person who likes to know when you have caused harm, then there are some valuable questions about how to make that real. How do you invite this information? How do you welcome it? How do you thank those who help you grow this way if they have to tell you because you have not figured it out for yourself? Do you realize just how scary it can be to tell you before they know how you will react? Do you confuse their fear of you for anger? Is their fear in any way justified? How can you make sure it is not? If your focus is more on the fact that harm got named than it is on the harm itself, does this strike you as peculiar? Depending on the severity and longevity of the harm and the body's silencing effects when trauma occurs, do you make it the responsibility of those you have harmed to tell you in a nice way? Is it possible they have tried to tell you in a nice way and you have clapped your hands over your ears or made it hard for them and eventually they lost the capacity to be nice when they were being harmed? If you think back, really think back, how long were they trusting you and quietly asking for your help and empathy and support and compassion and honesty before they lost their buffer of capacity to speak kindly while drowning? What you just said about folks don't feel attacked when they read the piece, that's really interesting to me. And I wonder how much of that do you feel comes from uh, the fact that you root a lot of things in attachment theory, which seems to go down to the real L, like the moment of birth, right? Yeah, or even before. Children. Exactly, yeah. When folks read these things about attachment theory, it's almost like they're given permission to yeah. like, recognize themselves as also victims of yeah. you know, a violence culture. Right. Yeah. Even yeah. if they're also the perpetrators of it. Do you yes, like absolutely. And I don't know if victim is the right word in that case, but of having lost something. And that's where it's not a perfect parallel to like the numbing in whiteness. And that's where I've been, I've been confused. I've been trying to make this connection and figure out how they relate, you know, and it's interesting to talk to someone who's in your position and maybe thinking things through because you have a different life experience from me. And I love learning from folks about how this resonated you know, cause I wrote it in a, like I was writing it for me and like five friends and then it got read all over the world and people then talked about it and I'm like, wow, it was that for you. <laughs> cool. <laughs> like, I don't know, <laughs> you know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I guess from what I'm hearing, it just allowed a gentleness towards that part of themselves that was maybe shamed that didn't deserve to be not that they're a victim, because I think that's too maybe oversimplifies or too it's a complex question, but that they're whole and they have the right to their feelings about and their needs, and that maybe whatever it is that creates adults who walk in the world missing chunks of themselves, um, you know, we want to reconnect with those parts of ourselves. It's in there; they're under there, and they're usually screaming pretty loud, and we're not hearing them. You know, like I'm in here and this is a legitimate need. And so it doesn't go away. That was how it happened. I had been working with this um, naturopath who was, you know, I, my trauma was coming up as behavior that I really did not like, <laughs> like what I perceived as neediness or like, basically I try to seek proximity to someone. If I'm, if I'm close to someone and they're an intimate of mine, if I'm under stress, I try to get near them. Literally that's it. I try to go be near them. <laughs> And 
I have a really strong set of values around not crossing boundaries. I'll, you know, I'm also an assault survivor. So like, you know, for me, if I want to, if something in me is compelling me to seek proximity in a way that I don't feel like I'm really choosing, like my body would move, I would go to be near them and I would be fighting it. Right. Or I'd call that thing where it's like, Oh, she called me over and over again. Or like that thing we shame a lot of folks for, you can have that happening and you can be fighting it and it can be horrifically embarrassing because it's not, it was, it was contrary to my own values to call somebody when they don't want to talk to you. But if they were like a lover or a partner of mine, I would need, I'd be trying to form secure attachment and I didn't know that's what I was doing. And as a result, I was like, this is horrible. This is violating boundaries. Cause like it was, you know, calling somebody, trying to sit near somebody, trying to talk to somebody just because they're your partner, but they don't want to right then. <laughs> or then, you know, various circumstances where like you're involved, but they don't necessarily, aren't necessarily in a place. I didn't know how to articulate. I have a trauma history. So if you get close to me, you're going to be creating secure attachment with me. I had none of those words. I just had shaming for the fact that this happened. So the people that I had become partners with had been friends. Like we'd known each other very well. And then they, we got involved and I was like, so you need to know that once I get involved with people, this other stuff starts happening that I don't understand and I can't really stop. And so you're going to have to look through that with me. And it got harder when I started dating people that weren't already my friend and didn't already know me because all of this trauma stuff would happen. And um, while being like, I was seeing this ND and I was like, can't you just give me like a naturopathic remedy that will make it go away? Like just, you know, I used to have uh, like a lung and chronic lung infection. And she gave me like a sugar pill and in three days they were gone and they never came back. And I was like, I hate this part of me. I hate that this is happening. It scares me. Can you give me something that'll make it go away? And she said, no, this is part of you. You cannot dissolve parts of yourself towards them and love them and accept them. That is the only way this is going to change. And I was like, how can I accept this? It's horrible. Like it's behavior that I don't, I don't, it's against my values. I don't want this. And she said, acceptance is not the opposite of rejection. Saying no, accepting your whole self does not mean you think that every behavior you do is okay. Like, and I think about it and it makes sense when I think about it with kids I love, like with my niece who's so much like me in a lot of ways. And so I really, we have a strong connection. Like she looks a little like me and she's her own person, but we've always had a pretty strong connection. When she was little, when she was like six or nine, you know, if she was kicking and like grabbed something out of her brother's hand at five, she is good. I love her. That's unbreakable. And that doesn't mean that it's okay for her to kick or grab or scream or <laughs> I'm going to be like, don't do that thing. But my love for you is unconditional and unbreakable. I needed that towards directed towards myself. And so I think I, I guess I implicitly understood that everybody needs it. And then I started to understand that in a larger sense, because we live in an atomized, you know, capitalist, individualist, neoliberal culture that's like you're only allowed to share food or clothes or belongings, you know, basic physical material needs only get shared with, you know, your 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 parents and your kids. And if you don't happen to have those needs met in that context, shit out of luck, you know? <laughs> like you're just supposed to get those needs met somewhere. And if you're someone who didn't get fed or didn't get clothed, I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of time looking around at people being confused about how those needs get met. And being like, I think I'm just supposed to do that myself, but I'm six. So how does that work? What I wanted to share with you is why I came to the book in the first place was yeah. based on a uh, relationship that was torn apart because of behavior that I committed. Mm -hmm. So that's why I came to the book. And I don't want to go into the details because I don't really know how that other person would mm -hmm. you know, 
feel about that. Yeah. But what I found in the book was much more than just um, kind of immediately what I thought it was going to be on the surface, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, and this conversation about attachment theory and then shaming and then kind of the active spaces that we numb or the lost parts of ourselves, it's reawakened a lot of like past memories. Yeah. There was a period of time where um, it sounds kind of similar with how you were unable to speak for a while. Mm-hmm. I think for about one year of my life, I couldn't actually form full sentences. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize, I didn't have the language like you were talking about of like, where are we supposed to get the words for this i know right right no like nobody told me any of this stuff or nobody was sharing it with me um so what i realized is that i've had many many experiences and memories kind of emerge to the surface not just through reading your book but a lot of other things that i've been engaging with that have made me understand that i've been actively trying to repress or numb parts of myself or memories just to like keep them at bay and to feel as if i'm okay you know yeah those are the past they're all gone um so why i wanted to even do this interview was the challenge that you issue is like sharing this information with other other cis men like cis men sharing with other cis men and having a model and a container that we start these conversations but it also reminds me of the dialogues in your book so your book is not just um essays it's also interviews and dialogues that you've had with other people that Mm-hmm. clearly indicate you had a desire to keep expanding and pushing beyond just the original frameworks that you kind of articulated. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering in these dialogues that were wide ranging about white supremacy, and colonization, um, and transphobia, mm-hmm. uh, what were the big things that you took away from those and like well, how those kind of shaped your thinking about no trans culture since you've had those conversations? I think there's knowing and then there's undoing, right? And they're not the same. They're related, but like my PhD is in race theory and nationalism. And I hadn't necessarily always understood what I was reading. Like I understood it theoretically, but that's different from understanding it at a human level. Um, and I guess that connects back to what we were saying, what I was saying earlier about um, listening, like that if people are describing a massive, it's so big, it's intimate, it's up against and in your body, but it's also huge, you know, colonization, white supremacy, like these are the very fabric of everyday life, but they're also massive and long, like long standing violence that's normalized. And so it's, if you're not targeted by it, even if you are targeted by it, it can be very difficult to name. Imagine if you're you're not even able to see it because it's um, the side of it. It's not that you're not in it. It's that the side of it faced, facing towards you is the nice side. Is the here you have some land. Here you have nice treatment by cops. Like the dental side is turned towards you. So how the fuck are you going to hear people when they say the side that's turned towards them? Right? You know how the same space or event can be polysemic, right? It can have appear differently to different observers because different aspects of it are presenting based on the observer's social position and how they're being received. And um, so there's a distortion that comes into play. And I think when I was reading a lot of the, you know, a lot of the theoretical stuff you learn, like you do, I did a comp on race theory and a comp on nationalism. And like, I got maybe 60% of what I was reading and I didn't know that I was missing more. And I still think there's a ton if you're 
like a white person that is not going to, not going to land, like, or it's going to land in this theoretical fancy, like, Ooh, high theory looks interesting, <laughs> but actually this is knowledge coming out of pain, knowledge coming out of like wisdom, hard fought for through suffering that allows you to perceive and, and resilience and strength and community bonds and like it's lives that get turned into they're the grist for the theorizing that we then like read, you know? Um, so I guess I'd read and read and read for many years. And then in the, and I'd also been a community organizer. Like I, I was, I'm in Vancouver. I was in known as legal Vancouver, a migrant justice organization here for like four or five years in the mid two thousands. Um, and I was learning, I learned as much there as I did in school, probably more, a lot more. Um, and I understood that a lot of what we do in academic worlds are, is take from those communities and then make careers out of it when people are not actually able to organize on the ground, because as folks there pointed out to me, like once we lose the best people to grad school, cause once they're in grad school, they don't have time to organize anymore. <laughs> right? That's a very truthful statement. Right. And then they take all this wisdom and expertise that's actually by folks who are doing frontline work and then they turn it into academic theory like it's mostly like piggybacking process <laughs> and I was in grad school while I, I went in really idealistic and then learned all of that and was like oh my god what am I doing here <laughs> um so there's like an education that was generously kind of granted by um folks that I was organizing with um because Noe Vancouver um for its long run as one of the most active groups in the city that I live in was led by folks of color. It was a mixed group and it was led by folks of color. And it was additionally, particularly led by folks who had experience coming through the immigration system. So people who had been non-status, who had been immigrants, who had been refugees and had been sort of through that system. That's who that's, you know, it was centering and then centering folks of color who were Canadian and then centering. And then after that, like other folks like me, um, so like I, it was an incredible learning experience. And then, so when I came to do the book, I already knew that I wasn't the right person to write about racism or colonization. Like there's this pressure, you know, that you're like, Oh, you, now you're ready. You wrote a blog. It went viral. Now you're writing a book. And you're like, yeah, I have two degrees on race theory, which mostly taught me we don't need more white people writing about race theory. <laughs> Because that's not who's going to do a really good job of it. So I really wanted to de-emphasize um, prestigious names. And I really wanted to just emphasize the relationships and the folks that I already have around and was already learning with and from and in relationship. And where there's, you know, there's trust that we've known each other for a few years. And if I do something that isn't working, I know that they'll be able to tell me, you know, that I'll listen and I'll change what I'm doing. Um. And also to emphasize the knowledge that is already around us, like that people in day-to-day -day life have an incredible amount of knowledge about their own struggles, right? That's what I'd been taught by those, like in, the, in that migrant justice organizing context is the expertise comes from the bottom. It doesn't come from the top. That's who you listen to. If you want to know what needs to happen, that's who can see it, right? Um, so that's what I wanted to do. I was like, okay who are the brilliant people that I'm already around and close with? And there was a colleague at work that I had worked with for a year and go, go for drinks and talk about our lives. And we'd never talked about her work. <laughs> and then um, I went to her PhD defense and I was just like, my brains were splattered against the back of the wall. She was so brilliant, you know, <laughs> and, and so heart-based, so driven by really so genuine coming from such a good place. And she's also like super intense on the ground organizer. And I was like, okay, do you want to do a chapter? Like, instead of just talking about our like marking over pancakes, let's talk about your work. 
and your organizing work and your life. And that became Natalie's chapter. And um, each of them were kind of like that. I had to wait. My poor publisher. <laughs> My poor editor. Because he'd be like, it's done. It has to be done. Why are you still working on it? And I was like, it's not done yet because it doesn't have this in it yet. And I can't go ask people. I have. They have to just hear. So Serena's chapter was the last one actually, which, and I couldn't publish the book without it. Like it was absolutely necessary. And she wrote me and was like, hi, I work at the gender, at the, um, at the anti-violence project at my university. And I'm a fan of the blog, but I also have critiques of it. You know, I'm a trans woman, like genderqueer trans woman. And, you know, there's like, the blog has its drawbacks, but I love your essay. Do you want to come do a talk in, in Victoria where she works? And I was like, did you just say that you're a fan and have critiques? <laughs> Can we talk? Because <laughs> I want to talk to you and maybe put your critiques in my book. <laughs> so that's how they grew. They were just like really organic. Um, and I love that about it because I don't, you know, there's a responsibility to those folks. I tried to share power as much as possible. I didn't understand publishing. I don't feel, I, I, you know, I grew up in a family where no one I knew had ever published a book. Like it wasn't a thing you could do. So for me, figuring this out has been inch by inch by inch, like cleaning up the obfuscation of how it all works. And I just wanted to share that power as much as possible. So whatever power I was given by the publisher, I shared with the contributors, sometimes in ways that made my editor lose, pull out his hair. <laughs> Like they were like, don't give it back to them for copy editing. And I was like, okay. And then I would give it to them for copy editing. <laughs> like any changes you need, we'll make whatever changes you want. Like it's your chapter. <laughs> but you know, so it just grew in a really organic relationship. And I think that I'm trying to just keep doing that because I've been given the power of this container and it means I'm in a gatekeeper position. So it's important to not, uh, to like let that go as much as you can while being responsible for being the container holder. As Kate Werning said, uh, she I did the um, Healing Justice podcast. We've recorded it. It's going to come out in the next few weeks. And she's, I think, doing a similar kind of project where like, she holds the container, but then centers voices of folks of color um, in a way that she tries to, she, from my impression, she tries to do it in a very high integrity way in accountable relationships with self-reflection. And I think there's a, there's a resonance there, you know, but she pointed out that you're responsible for the container that you're holding. So it's that balance, you know, sharing power, but holding the responsibility of the mind. So I'm wondering about um, after you had these conversations and they kind of teased out critiques, things that you expanded upon and had now kind of shaped a way of thinking about nurturance culture in different ways. Why did you decide to not go back and edit the original essay for publishing in the book and like make all these you know changes to it that kind of would have, otherwise hidden yeah the places to be critiqued was there a reason that you chose to do that yeah we thought about it and it wouldn't have made sense to have serena be like you say this line in your chap in your essay and it excludes genderqueer folks or non-binary folks if the chapter before was already fixed and i it had already it wasn't like the essay didn't already have a social life like the essay had already circulated so i wanted to keep the process clear and have it be a snapshot of it we we edited like we proofread a few things. We didn't change any content because I my thinking had changed. Like we grow, we learn, right? And the whole point is not to try to be perfect and not to try to look like you've got your shit together and not to try to be like, oh, I'm the right, I'm the organizer who knows things. Like, <laughs> But instead to be like, no, we're going to just fuck up and learn. And that's cool. Like 
we're going to talk to each other and be like, Hey, that thing you did doesn't work for me. Can you think about this? Can you do that? And be like, Oh yeah. Okay, great. So like, instead of this weird, like white organizing spaces are so perfectionist. I don't know if you've noticed this, but like right around after you were in surge, right? Were you involved in surge? Did I read that? Uh, no, I no, that wasn't you. No. I thought I read that. Maybe it was something. I, was I know a little bit about the group, but I've never actually actively participated. Well, but just all of the, like, right after Trump came in, there was that whole, like, oh my God, white people have to get organized, like wave. Mm-hmm. And I was in five of these groups and none of them could function. None of them got anything done <laughs> because when you have only white people in the space, they're just trying to be like the smarter one and the better one and one up each other and compete and be perfect. And I was just like, this is exhausting. But there was one that started to form in Vancouver and we got asked to disband because people were like, don't take resources and form an all white group. Just give your resources to the existing groups, including your time and your energy and your running around will. And and we were like, yeah, okay, fair. (laughs) That makes sense. But, um, but also they were just, we were kneecapping ourselves. It was impossible to do anything because of the perfectionism. And I'd never organized in spaces like that before. And I was like, get me the fuck out of here. Like, I don't need to be perfect. I need us to be comfortable with mess and disagreement. You know, like um, something that I loved that Harsha has said, um, you know, Harsha Wally's book, uh, Undoing Border Imperialism. So she lives here in Vancouver. She um, was one of the folks that was involved with Noe Van for many, many years. She's, I think it was a horizontal group. Like it wasn't, there was no, no one, there was no paid staff. There was no formal structure, but there's informal leadership, I think. And I'd say that she's someone that a lot of people here really respect and learn from and admire. Um, And uh, something she said is like, we struggle together. It doesn't just mean we struggle together against these big opposing forces. It also means we struggle with one another. But that's part of work. Part of movement work is to hold. And I love that. Like you hold together. You don't assume you're going to get it right away and you work together. Our episode concludes by focusing on the ways violence affects the limbic brain and how forming secure bonds and healthy attachments can repair harm in powerful ways. When you have experienced trauma, there are distinct physiological responses. There are parts of the brain, and it, there's, and again, this is like a layperson's understanding, right? I don't have a medical background, but I had these experiences, and I have, oh, I'm good with words. <laughs> My job is teaching undergrad research skills. And so when I was like, okay, something's happening to me because I can't speak. I was having experiences where I would open my mouth and I could not make words come out. You know, when you're in a dream and you try to talk and like nothing comes out, that was happening to me awake. And that doesn't happen to me. Like I have a PhD in English. (laughs) So I was like, okay, if I cannot make words, something is really, really wrong. And I knew it was physiological, but I had never heard of it before. So, and I was like, well, my job is teaching undergrads how to assess debates in the primary research. So I'm going to go into those databases and figure out what the hell is going on. And of course, there's tons of research on this. So soldiers coming back from war who have PTSD, they've done brain scans through their brains, and they can see that when you have elevated cortisol in your system over a long period of time, the hippocampus, which is a cortisol area of the brain that's in the limbic brain, that's called the hippocampus because it's kind of shaped like a seahorse, um, it can shrink and develop like lesions. It actually changes shape because it's got a lot of cortisol receptors. So if you're living, if you're... Um, 
someone who is living in danger over a long, long time, your hippocampus will can become injured. And the hippocampus has a lot of different responsibilities. It's responsible for your location in space and in time orientation. It's one of its main jobs is connecting together parts of your brain networks that are stored all over the brain. So to create one, what they call one episodic experience. So if you have the example that's commonly given is if you have a dinner party, you'll remember it as these were the friends there. These were the scent of the candles. This was the taste of the food. This was the conversation. But your brain is actually storing those in all different kinds of networks, color, smell, taste, social, emotional. They're not stored together. And the job of the hippocampus is to unite them into one cohesive experience, experiential memory. And so if the hippocampus is damaged, you're going to have little bits and pieces, or you're going to have candle and light and scent of, of food, but they're not going to be connected. And so already recall, and also it's involved in storing short-term memories into long-term memories, it's a complex set of interactions, but that's what you end up experiencing is things are fragmented to begin with. And then when you experience trauma and you try to speak about it, reliable reproducible studies indicate that Broca's area, which is a language area on the left side of the brain, just turns off like blood flow, like it just stopped working. And that's the area, one of the areas that allows you to produce speech. inside your head, even thinking words or verbal speech. And it's just not working. And so that experience that I was having when I would open my mouth, there was someone in a situation four years ago where I was being harmed and a friend was on the phone with me and was like, hey, are you having a great time with this new partner? And I wanted to open my mouth and say, help, something's wrong. We were on the phone, so I guess he couldn't see me. And I opened my mouth to say that and I could not make the words come out of my mouth. Like I couldn't form them. It was like a fish gasping for air feeling, you know? And I, you know, I didn't understand why. And then there's a third major one that's just before you even speak, not even at the level of people's ability to hear or help. There's, um, so Alexandra Stein's work, she wrote a book called Terror, Love and Brainwashing that I have found extremely helpful And um, her research is into cults, but she points out that these dynamics in the brain neurologically happen, whether it's a cult of what we typically think of, you know, 50 people, 20 people, 100 people, or five people, or two people, that it can happen in an abusive partnership, it can happen in a family, or it can happen all the way up at the scale of an oppressive regime like in North Korea, an authoritarian country. That Neurologically, it's the exact same process, and it's the um, attachment system that's operating. Um, And she points out that she, she points to some research about the orbital frontal cortex which is an area at the top of your limbic brain. So the highest level of your emotional connection, attachment part of the brain and the lowest of the neocortex where you do the higher abstract rational thinking and it connects the two. It's one of the areas that is between them and weaving them together. Um, And it shuts down when the source of the harm is also who you go to for attachment or when you must maintain a good relationship with the source of the harm. It can be a person, it can be a culture, it can be an organization. Um, and so you are having experiences, sensory experiences, emotional experiences, relational experiences, and you just can't quite think about them. And your attachment system, because you're alarmed, the attachment system teaches us to go towards an attachment figure, to go towards safety. But that's precisely where the harm and danger is coming from. So it creates this um, dissociative experience. And she points out that under in those circumstances, that's when brainwashing becomes possible because um, you're attaching to 
you're in an impossible dilemma. And that kind of fuzzy spaced out feeling when you're like, I feel like something's wrong, but I can't really think clearly enough to get myself out of the situation. That dissociative experience um, she described as involving, I'm sure many areas of the brain, but one of them is the orbital prefrontal cortex. And so your, your integration of emotion and cognition just isn't working right. And that helped me so much because there's a concrete way to pin down what's happening. So all of that happens before you even manage to understand what's wrong and then name it. So no wonder people take a long time to ask for help or say, oh, something happened. That's just a part of the many complex functions that make it hard to think of and hard to name it. And then once you do, there are barriers to people listening. And I've been on all sides of this. I've been more more times than otherwise I've been a listener or a bystander. And, you know, the first few times the first, when I was younger, I can think of many situations where someone was getting really seriously harmed and I couldn't really hear them. And I think a lot of us have that experience. And you only really get it later when you think back or if, you, if you're willing to do that work and be like, they were telling me what was happening and it, it didn't make any sense to me. It, it meant nothing. Like... Um, you know, a lot of people turn away, misrecognize. Um, we assume it takes two, you know, that, well, you must've done something to deserve it. You know, what's your part in this? <laughs> the false dichotomy, um, the, uh, the false middle logical fallacy when people are like the middle point between two extremes must be the best, <laughs> which like doesn't make any sense logically. And <laughs> we know that, but for some reason, when it's conflict, we always think meeting in the middle is the best. And it's like, no, when you're compromising between he should be able to rape you and you should be able to say, no, I don't want to be raped. Meeting in the middle is not the solution. <laughs> right? And there are many situations where we don't need to meet in the middle because that adds to the violation. We just need to be able to turn to the person doing the harm and be like, hey, back up. <laughs> no, no, you can't do that. Stop. Just them, not both. <laughs> But it, our culture teaches us that middle, you know, is compromise, like, and that doesn't allow us to perceive the situation very clearly. Um, sometimes people can perceive the harm, but they can't act on it. Like, they can, they're like, I believe you, but I didn't know it was possible to say no to men, or I didn't know it was possible to say no to white people, or like, yeah, they're my boss, I can't, you know, and that's sometimes real situations, you, you can't, it's dangerous. and sometimes it, you could, and it's conditioning. That's the cool thing about the limbic brain, or the, the horrible thing and the good thing is that um, it creates rules when you're very little. And those rules, it decides are just how things are, but they're actually chance. So whatever was happening to you when you were like under three, let's say you grew up in a home where you're not, you cannot ever disagree with the, you know, like I, you know, you grow, I grew up in like a fairly patriarchal, like old school patriarchal home, right? In some ways. And the danger in crossing or disagreeing even a little bit with the, the patriarch of the family, it's just not a thing you can do, right? Um, this is just an example. It's not exactly my experience. We, were, we did disagree and argue and whatever, but I know of folks for whom it is not thinkable to openly disagree with the folks who have power. And that's the case from so early on and they observe their parents, their mom might always defer and maybe then do what they want behind the back or there's other ways that women get power or, and, and queer and trans folks, you know, there's, and all kinds of oppressed folks find many ways to regain some of that agency that's taken by those systems. But let's say you grew up in a family where you can't ever, ever openly disagree. And that's from very early on. You might not know that it's even possible because your limbic brain will create this pattern and just be like, well, that's what's happening. 
So that's how the world is. <laughs> and that area of the brain is so deep down. It doesn't, it doesn't easily, it's not easily accessed through language. Um, it doesn't have language. It doesn't function through language. So it'll create these patterns and then just anchor them in what they call neural cement, where it's very difficult to access them and change them. But they can be changed. It's like changing the course of a river, right? Many, many repetitions. Like if you believe that you're shameful on some level, like if you don't get, this is, I'm jumping topic a bit. But like, let's say you don't get mirrored in some important way as a kid, right? And we need to be mirrored. We need to be seen and really known. Like you see little babies, they're always looking at you like, look at me, look at me. <laughs> they always want us to see them because they legitimately need that for their brains to develop in the optimal way. And if we don't get that, we might internalize, and not necessarily because people are being abusive, maybe they didn't get it and so they can't give it or whatever reason they're under stress or, but regardless, if we don't get it, that part, we don't think, oh, there's something going on with my caregivers. <laughs> Wonder what's up with them, you know? <laughs> I'm fine. We internalize it as there's something wrong with me. That part of me is utterly shameful and must go away. And we put those parts of ourselves away. I think that connects into where I hope that little book is intervening. Um, and if I think of what nurturance culture is doing, maybe at the level of the culture, like crystallizing change, you know how, you know those. Mm, I don't know if this metaphor will work, but you know those liquids that you put one drop of another chemical in and the whole thing turns into crystals? So if I think of like a catalyst, if the book is moving through the culture, hopefully touching things and changing things a little here and there, what I think it, what I, my best days I hope I might be doing is, so if one of the things Alexandra Stein says in Terror, Love and Brainwashing is that in a cult context, one of the defining features is that people are not allowed to create a secure attachment horizontally with one another because they're less manipulable. If they trust one another, they're only allowed to create attachments upward to the leader or the organization. It can be the group. It doesn't have to be a person. And that they're intercha many interchangeable others. So you're close brushing up against all of these other people, but you do not form vulnerable, secure bonds with them where you deeply trust one another at a limbic in the limbic sense and that creates the vulnerability to um you only at, you're, you're attaching to the source of the harm rather than to alternate attachments because she says that the way you can the way brainwashing can be resisted is by having outsides other secure attachments alternate secure attachments so she tells stories of people who are in let's say like tiny prison camps like for re-education and the way that they the ones who could keep their head clear because, you know, because they were dissenters and the way that they could keep their head clear were, you know, two who had grown up together in the same small village and had known each other from childhood and trusted one another because they had a long history face to face together in, in their childhoods growing up who were now in these camps as adults and could trust each other and have an alternate bond that allowed their limbic brain to attach to them instead of to the prison guards. And then that allowed them to think together and talk together about what was real and that allowed them to stay clear. And I think of that in a North American context where once I understood that, if I think about the atomization of North American culture, where many people live in like suburbia where we, we wave hi to our neighbors, but we don't have secure bonds with anyone except maybe one or two people, three or four, if we're lucky, you know, if we have a grandparent and a kid and a brother, maybe, okay, that's it. You know, we don't have secure bonds outside our very small spaces. And that means that 
this culture's one of its weaknesses is that it's highly, I think, prone or or rife ripe for authoritarianism. It makes us ripe for authoritarianism in a way that's very frightening. And I guess if what I'm trying to say is secure attachments are not just for couples the way they are thought of in psychology. Secure attachments are not just for parents and children. They're not just for siblings. They're not just for romantic partners. I think that secure, that the limbic brain's gift of belonging also is part of what allows us to belong ecologically and socially. Um, that maybe this nervous system that grew in and as and with and part of the earth is also calling us to recognize our partness, our with our belongingness physiologically with the earth and with one another as an extension of that ecological oneness and belonging and interwovenness, right? Um, and maybe that's a little crystallizing of connectedness that can resist the fragmentation that puts us at risk for a trauma. Maybe. <laughs> That'd be nice. Well, I do think that we probably are out of time. Mm. The book's called Turn This World Inside Out, The Emergence of Nurturance Culture with the pseudonym Nora Samara. Mm -hmm. It was really nice talking to you. This was very different for a labor wave. We don't use <laughs> free-flowing conversations. You uh, really drew, this was a really good one, for, like a very enjoyable conversation for me. I think you drew out a lot of good questions. And I'm glad that you enjoyed the conversation. I enjoyed it too. Yeah. should have you again on the show. That'd be fun. Day. I take my meals here, I sleep in the maze.